BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is In Our Time from BBC Radio 4 and this is one of more than a thousand episodes you can find on BBC Sounds and on our website. If you scroll down the page for this edition, you can find a reading list to go with it. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello, starry nights and sunflowers, self-portraits and simple chairs. These are images known the world over and Vincent van Gogh painted them and around 900 others in the last decade of his short, brilliant life. And famously, by the time he'd killed himself when he was only 37, he sold only one. Yet within a few decades after his death, these extraordinary works with all their colour and life became the most desirable of all modern art, propelled in part by the story of his artist's struggle with mental health. With me to discuss Vincent van Gogh, 1853 to 1890, a Christopher Riopel, the Neil Westride curator of post-1800 paintings at the National Gallery, Martin Bailey, a leading Van Gogh specialist and correspondent for the art newspaper, and Francis Fowle, Professor of 19th Century Art at the University of Edinburgh and Senior Curator at the National Galleries of Scotland. Francis, what do we know about the early life of Vincent Van Gogh? Well, we know a certain amount. The, the, most of the, the knowledge we have of Van Gogh is through the letters, and unfortunately there are obviously there's not much correspondence from that early period. It's secondary information. So, for example, Jo van Gogh Bonger, who was Theo van Gogh's widow, tells us that he was quite a difficult child. And one can assume from that that some of the, the kind of patterns which emerge in later life were formed in that earlier period. He had a very happy, very secure childhood, and he was living in the south of Holland with his father and mother. His father was a parson. He had a post in the Dutch Reform Church. He was a Protestant minister. And they were brought up in this area which is actually predominantly Catholic. And allegedly, Van Gogh's mother, Anna, was quite a... You know, she was actually quite a, a snobbish woman, I think. She came from an upper-middle-class background in The Hague and she was concerned that her children should be brought up as, as proper Protestants and not mixed too much with the, the kind of local ruffians, I could say, the local ruffians in, in the village. They were a very close family. They wrote to each other you know, when he was older, particularly with Theo, who was his brother, the older of the two brothers that he had. He had actually, there were, there were six of them in the family. He had three sisters, two brothers, and he actually had another brother who was born exactly a year before him, to the very day, who was also called Vincent. Not something which was uncommon in those days. It was quite usual for you, you to be named after a, a dead sibling. Was he attracted to the idea of being any sort of artist from an early age? He was introduced to drawing by his by his parents. Um, he was given drawing lessons as well, the children. And actually, the, we have there's an early drawing from about um, 1864, when he was 11, which shows him... Really, been, it was quite a competent drawing, in fact, of uh, farmhouse and barn. And then when he went to school, he was actually sent away to school, to boarding school. And the second school he went to, he was given drawing lessons there. So he would actually have learnt a certain amount, but he doesn't write about this at all at any point. How did he become an art dealer and how did that help him? So at the age of 16, after he'd left school, he left school at the age of 15 and their parents were kind of wondering what to do with him. So, they, Why were they wondering if he was a bright chap? What well, was, he was a bright chap, but he was also quite a difficult individual right. and um, found it difficult to kind of stick to anything. So he had three uncles who were art dealers and one in particular, Uncle Vincent, Uncle Sent. He had set up the Hague branch of the Goupil Gallery, which was a prestigious art dealers based in Paris 
and which had branches in Brussels and in America and in London. And so he, at the age of 16, he was sent to The Hague and taken under the wing of the manager there, who was a man called Tersteg, and had quite a happy time. He was, it was a really important period for him because he was exposed to the art of The Hague School, who were a group of artists who were interested in painting in a very realistic way. And his uncle had a collection of these modern artists. And after about four years, he shift, He was moved to the London office and he sent a list of, of the artists that he most admired to, to Theo. And among them, you see not only these Hague School artists, these people like Anton Mauve, who was his cousin, the, the Maris brothers, but also the Barbizon School, who were the precursors of Impressionism. So artists like Jean-François Millet, the painter of the Sower and the Angelus, who would have a huge impact on him later on. Thank you very much. Martin Bailey, um, he turned or returned to religion. What marks that episode in his life? Well, his attitude to religion is actually um, fascinating and slightly surprising, if you like. He was brought up in this rather conventional Protestant society and, um, as Francis said, his father was a pastor. So uh, he had that sort of religious upbringing. Um, he then came to England and um, he was eventually sacked as an art dealer and he then went into a period of deep depression and at that point um, he was taking a job as a teaching assistant in Isleworth in West London and he suddenly became, uh, well I would say, obsessed with religion and he wrote long letters to his family and his brother in particular with long quotations from the Bible and he became very evangelical, um, extremely so. Uh, that continued for several years after he returned Several home. years? Yes, indeed. And when he was in Holland, he then made the decision he wanted to become a missionary in the Belgium coal mining area of the Borinage, uh, which was a poverty-stricken area. And he eventually spent two years there trying to preach to the miners, the problem was the miners didn't really want to hear what he said. They were um, really just engaged in the day-to-day -day struggle of living. Mm. He wasn't a very good communicator, and eventually he realised that he wasn't succeeding. So he left Belgium, as he left the Borinage, and at that point he suddenly really abandoned religion. And from then onwards he had a fairly secular attitude towards life. I mean, I think he was a spiritual person, but he was uh, he began to detest organized religion. So what age are we talking about now when he leaves that? It was when he was in his mid 20s that he abandoned religion, organized religion. We're taking a bit of a jump, but it was then, only then, that he began to learn to paint. Is that true? It, yes, he began by drawing rather than painting. But it was when he abandoned his job as a missionary, he wanted to do something else. And it may come as a surprise, but he suddenly decided he wanted to be an artist. And he began by drawing. He didn't have any organised training at that point. He, he tried two or three times and got flopped, and he flopped every time, didn't he? He, he did. Yeah. Um, he, he started drawing by himself. He then ended up going to the Art Academy in Brussels, stayed probably just a few weeks. Yes. And I think he came bottom of the class, probably, and at that point he abandoned it. Yes, and he went to one or two others. But he taught himself... Can you tell us of the early process of him determined to keep on and how he taught himself? Yes, he taught himself essentially from manuals and he would copy drawings in drawing manuals. So he did it himself. He was very determined 
Without that, you wouldn't have succeeded. But of course, it was a rather lonely way of learning how to draw. How was he making a living? He wasn't making a living. He was actually surviving. Well, when he was a, a missionary, he was surviving on almost nothing, and he was really in abject poverty. As soon as he started becoming an artist, his brother Teo, his younger brother, gradually supported him financially, and that actually continued until the end of his life. And without that support, Vincent could never have been an artist. Can you go into close-up about how he learned to paint? It's fascinating. There he is, 27. He's uh, done this, that and the other. He decides he will be a painter. He will be an artist. Yes. And then what? Well, he decided to be an artist, and initially he drew. And it was only um, a year or two later, when he was in The Hague, that he started to use oil paint. And it was Anton Mauve, uh, who Francis mentioned, who encouraged him to develop oil painting. And once he started, he again, he taught himself, essentially, but he developed remarkably quickly in the space of just a few years. Yes, taught himself meant he looked at things and copied them. He would look at a landscape or a, a person, not copy the landscape or yeah. person, but that would inspire him. When he really became an artist, he really liked to be in front of the motif. He didn't use his imagination. He didn't want to rely on his imagination. He looked at a landscape and then interpreted it. He didn't only do landscape, he did a lot of people, and particularly people who were working. He did a lot of people at work or just having finished work. In that palace, they would be called peasants. How does the, the potato eaters fit in here? Could you tell the listeners what that is and how it fits in? Yes. I mean, the, the, port the portraits you're dis discussing uh, are those, mostly those that he did in the village of Noonan, where he, his parents were living, and he was staying with them to save money. And the local peasants were willing, or some of them were willing, to pose for fairly small sums of money. So he, he had people to pose for him. He did quite a lot of individual portraits. And then, after about a year of that, he had this ambition of putting them together in a scene. And the scene is the potato eaters, which is a rather dark painting of an interior with a handful of people sitting around the table having their evening meal. They're eating potatoes, no surprise there. And this was uh, quite ambitious to bring all of these individual portraits and individual people together in a scene. And he regarded it as his first important painting. I mean, it's quite unlike the Van Gogh that we actually know because the colours are dark. And we think of Van Gogh as with, with these exuberant, often complementary colours. Um, but this was the period when he was beginning to paint in the Netherlands and they were dark pictures. Why do you think that was? I think it was uh, partly based on uh, the art of the Netherlands at the time. The Hague School paintings, painters were generally working in dark colours, not necessarily quite as dark. Now, I'm wondering from your question whether you think it might have reflected his mood or not. That's very difficult to say. He always found life difficult and there were lots of difficulties in Noonan. I think he, he didn't feel bold enough to go into colours. He, he really explored colours later in his life when he moved to Paris and he saw the work of the Impressionists, and that was key. We'll come to that. Thank you very much, Chris Hriopel. Uh, he's, he's moving quickly at this stage, isn't it, for him? Uh, he's, been to, he's been to The Hague, he's been to London, where he's uh, fallen in love with the, the work of Charles Dickens, and we're told he read a great deal of Dickens. He also taught himself languages, English, French, a bit of German, 
um, and read widely, we're told, while he was in, in this country, I might say. Uh, and the 1886 is in Paris. What did that bring him? Paris was a kind of revelation uh, for him. His brother... Teo was there, was working as an art dealer, was making friends among the avant-garde. So when Vincent arrives in Paris in March of 1886, he already has a milieu into which he can insert himself, and it's a very, very exciting one. His brother Teo had told him in advance, all the young artists are using color, bright color. So he had a sense of what he was going to see. But he also found himself among struggling artists, to be sure, but of in immense sophistication. Uh, they lived in Paris, after all. Uh, but, for example, his friend Gauguin had been literally everywhere in the world, had grown up in Peru, spoke several languages. His grandmother, Flora Tristan, was a fascinating radical politician. So he, suddenly he was moving among uh, people who expanded him intellectually and made him, what I would say, greatly daring. Color soon enters his uh, his art with great force. Can we take two steps back? When he goes to Paris, does he meet... He meet we know Gauguin... We'll talk about Gauguin mm -hmm. later. But who else did he meet? Did, was he part of the groups which seemed to sprout all over the place in Paris at that time? Exactly. Uh, and he was meeting so many people, not only French like Toulouse-Lautrec, a great aristocrat, Seurat, uh, whom he uh, admired. He tried uh, to imitate him. And he? tried to imitate mm. at various points. He also meets foreigners, uh, John Russell, the Australian, and they become very close uh, friends. Alex Reed, the Glasgow art dealer, uh, and they become uh, friends. So suddenly his horizons are expanding, both artistically and in terms of friendships. In his own painting, what does he paint at that time? He continues at first to paint in what I would call the the Dutch style he'd been working in. So the old shoes with laces looks like a Dutch picture. But very quickly he was moving to Rembrandt paint. was one of his heroes. Rembrandt course, was, yeah. was a hero. Uh, very quickly, though, he comes to paint Paris, particularly the edges of Paris up in uh, Montmartre, where the city is giving way to the countryside, or the countryside is being turned into city as you, as you watched. And he was fascinated by that point of transition between city and country. And some of his most interesting works of those two years in Paris are about the city it's, itself. How much self-belief do you think he had at that time? He, he's just started painting. He's among people who are already establishing reputations. They might be small, but they're, 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 yes. they're reputations made by very clever people, and they yes. know they're in that. He's sort of nowhere. So how did he keep his self-belief going? I think that uh, among the lessons he saw when he got to Paris and saw the Impressionists, as Martin mentioned, he saw that new young artists had to do it for themselves. They were organizing their own exhibitions. They were contacting dealers. They were contacting critics. They were, in a way that had never really been the case before, taking charge of their own careers because they knew no one was going to be helping them in the state or anything else. And I think observing this in certain ways emboldened him to really begin to, to think big, to, to emulate ambitious people like Gauguin and Seurat. 
but he's still being supported by his brother. He's still, <laughs> yes. No, and this is not, a, I mean, good for the brother. I'm not being sarcastic mm. about it. It was tremendous. No, yeah. his, it, it, uh, Teo was one of the heroes of modern art for supporting mm. him. So, uh, yes, he needed a lot of help, I think. Yes. Francis, um, Gauguin enters the picture. What's his significance to Van Gogh? I think he was very important. Um, the person that has been kind of left out, though, is, is Emile Bernard, who is the link, really. But I, I feel he's kind of a crucial link between Van Gogh and, and Gauguin. And he was one of the artists that he met at the Atelier Cormont, when he, um, which, is, which is a studio he attended, and it was run by a man called Fernand Cormont. And Emile Bernard was there too and was similarly unconventional. And so he found in him a soulmate. So there's a lot, there's correspondence between him and Bernard, and there's also correspondence between him and Gauguin. And actually, one of the things that was really impressive about Gauguin was that he'd already established himself outside Paris at this artist colony at Pont-Aven in Brittany. And he had a whole entourage of acolytes, of disciples. So he was a really quite a very confident individual. But at the same time, he was, he was struggling. He was struggling to be recognised. He'd just come back when they met from Martinique, from the Caribbean island of Martinique. And he was very keen to make a connection with Theo van Gogh because he was a, an art dealer and he wanted Theo to take him under his wing. Oh, I see. So I think he saw really a route to Theo through Vincent. But at the same time, they also had this... They, he, Bernard and Gauguin, Vincent Be- Gauguin, Bernard, had this common interest in a way challenging Impressionism and moving beyond Impressionism and thinking in a much more abstract way. This is the word that Gauguin uses. He talks about art as being an abstraction. And so he encourages both Bernard and Van Gogh to think with the mind rather than with the eye. And this is something which actually Van Gogh struggles with quite a great deal. But they form this little Why do you think he struggles with it? He struggled with it because he was much happier when he was painting in front of nature and being immersed in the countryside. Martin, he was treading water in Paris and then he he decided to move yet again and he went to Arles in in Provence and uh, we have the sun and the sunflowers and uh, and so on why did he go there well i think he always thought somewhere else would be better than where he was <laughs> um he'd been in paris for two years and although it had been very exciting life there was very hectic and i think he found it a bit much in 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 the end uh, he also said he'd been drinking heavily and with all the bars of montmartre just around the corner that must have been quite tempting for a young man um he also felt that I think he could uh, work better. He loved working outside in the landscape, and he was therefore attracted by Provence in the south of France, where the weather was warmer and whether he could work outside. And he thought life would be cheaper. Um, I'm not sure whether it actually was, because, of course, he had to rent somewhere, and in Paris he just stayed with his brother. But the day-to-day expenses would have been cheaper there. So he headed off, and... Uh, he settled down and uh, he had a good year. Yes. Tell us about the sunflowers. Well, Van Gogh had painted um, some cut sunflowers when he was in Paris uh, for still lifes, but the sunflowers that we know and love uh, are the still lifes which he painted in Arles in the summer in August 1888. And he painted them partly because he wanted to decorate Gauguin's bedroom. He was hoping that Gauguin would come, and Gauguin kept delaying coming from Brittany uh, to stay with him in the Yellow House. And sunflowers are exuberant flowers. Um, August is the time 
to pick them and uh, to paint them. And he was obviously excited. He loved taking advantage of the different seasons and sunflowers symbolized the summer. And for him, the sun had great symbolic importance. And they are astonishing works. He did four different versions of the sunflowers. We all tend to think that the one we know is the only one, but there were four. And the most important is the one that's in the National Gallery in London, which is the yellow sunflowers on the yellow background. And um, that has become an icon. Do you want to comment on the sunflowers? Well, um, I think Chris should comment on the one in the National Gallery, but I, would, I was going to say that as, as well as these four, there are, he actually painted the subject numerous times because it, it became almost a, something which one associates yes, with yeah, him. Yeah. And actually, when he first met Gauguin, he, he gave him two of his sunflower paintings, which, are, which were just cut sunflowers, doing one or two flowers just lying on a, on a surface, as if that was sort of something which represented him. So I think it, it was something very personal to him and something which he associated with Provence as well. And it, yes, Gauguin uh, very much admired the sunflowers he had uh, seen in Paris. But when he gets to Arles and sees the, the National Gallery sunflowers hanging on his wall in his bedroom in the Yellow House, he is startled because he sees how far Van Gogh has jumped ahead in his art. Van Gogh had said to him, when you come to uh, Provence, uh, you will be the leader, I will be the follower. I I will be the uh, follower. But what uh, Gauguin realizes so quickly is that in certain ways, Van Gogh has has jumped ahead of him. Yes. The relationship with them didn't last all that long, did it? They worked together throughout the the autumn of uh, of 88. But uh, by Christmas, I think the differences in their in their personalities, but also their aesthetic differences, what they thought was important in modern painting had diverged so much. And uh, Martin alluded to it, the difference between observing nature and painting from it and uh, free form creating uh, that Gauguin favored uh, had driven them apart. He sounds very difficult. Um, Pizarro said, call it here, this man will either go mad or leave us way behind. (laughs) He did both. They were both difficult. Both Van Gogh and Gauguin in their different ways were difficult and that's why it didn't work, their collaboration in the It seems odd looking at the paintings. You think, how could it possibly ever have worked and thinking about the lives they were leading? Yes. Gauguin left him and... It's about that time that we have the infamous cutting off of the ear. It seems to have followed very, uh, very closely upon this breakup that we imagine happened yes. in in the street right at Christmas time. He was, Vincent was was discombobulated by it, and uh, Gauguin stomps back off north, and he's he's left alone, which must have been a kind of psychic shock for him. Well, can we just... Um, it's, it's a bit gory, but people, everybody knows about it. It's one of the big things I know about Van Gogh. So he was obviously got very depressed. You tell the story. Well, uh, after they had, had met in, in the street and had this falling, uh, falling out, he goes home, I'm not quite sure of the time frame, but chops away at the lobe of his ear, I think it was uh, most, which anyone who's ever had a cut on the ear knows there's an awful lot of blood right, uh, right there at the surface. So it must have looked quite horrific. He goes to the doctor, he's bandaged up, he paints himself with these bandages around him. He remains uh, focused enough, as it were, to re- report 
on what has happened in quite astonishing pictures. Yes, but it, that is the first visible sign to everybody else that, that all things are not well. Yes, and, and, and a sign to himself, because he then goes to the asylum, first of all, in, in Arles itself, uh, and is under doctor's care there. Can you take us through, through the asylum, Francis? Yeah, so he actually, so first of all, he goes to the hospital in, in Arles, and then he transfers, he's under a doctor called Felix Rey, who diagnoses epilepsy, um, which, is, which is questionable, but he obviously, there's no real conclusion about what he did suffer from, although there are various theories. So he then admitted himself to this asylum, the Saint-Paul Hospital in Saint-Rémy, which was a, it was a converted monastery. Yeah. And he, it, bizarrely, it was actually quite empty when it was only half full, apparently. So he, he got a room to himself and he had a, an extra room where, which he could use as a studio, which is quite useful, and was able to paint use, using that studio and paint the garden. Initially, obviously, he was under constant care and was not allowed out, but he stayed there for about a year or perhaps a little bit longer and so gradually he began to he was allowed to go out into the countryside and pursue new subjects. Martin, you've discovered uh, records about the other people who were at the asylum at that time, am I right? Yes, I mean... And, and I, it sounds it sounds, it's, it sounds very distressing for everybody concerned, but it must have been well, can you talk about it? Yes well I was researching a book on this period in the asylum uh, called Starry Night and I discovered that there was an unknown and unpublished register of the patients, which was at the archives at Saint-Rémy. And although it was an administrative document uh, and it wasn't a medical register, it gave the names of the patients. And from that information, I was able to get some idea of what the patients were suffering from. And it was actually horrific. Yeah. Um, it, there were only 20 other male patients there um, most of them were even worse conditioned than Van Gogh was and it must have been so difficult for him living in this terrible environment and I think in a way art was the escape which saved him it was because he could go out and paint or paint in his studio in, his, in the small room that he was able to forget what was going on around him before we go to the studio in the small room, which, which of course takes us to the Star of Night, uh, it's just very, very sad. Some, the condition of some of the people in that asylum who were his constant companions was dreadful. Yes, there was one young man who was 20, I think, who was admitted a few weeks after him, who couldn't speak. And Van Gogh says he threw the furniture around the room. Well, if you can't communicate verbally... Um, you're going to resort to that sort of thing. But imagine the shock of having someone doing that, or you go to the um, canteen for um, for lunch and people throwing plates around. I mean, it must have been highly disturbing. He doesn't write about it in his letters to Theo, either because he didn't want to disturb his brother or else he just wanted to escape when he was writing to his brother and wanted to imagine the world outside. He is confined... He's confined with people who are more distressed than he is and are distressing him even more. But he finds a window, and under that window, it is probably his greatest exterior, one of the greatest outside exp uh, paintings he ever did, Starry Night. Do you want to tell us about that, Francis? Absolutely. So he, it's actually the view from the window of, of his room upstairs. Yes. And um, he actually painted quite a lot of paint pictures of that view. But this one, 
is partly based in reality and what he could see in reality and partly is painted from the imagination. It's a quite extraordinary painting. I'm sure it's very familiar to a lot of listeners. But um, it shows a view of... uh, It's a nighttime view, although it's actually early morning because you can see in the sky um, the morning star, Venus, and then on the right-hand side you can see the, the waxing moon and then this kind of extraordinary firmament and it looks like sort of the Milky Way or the, the, the sky is dotted with stars and then this incredible sense of movement. And then in the foreground there's um, a, a cypress tree which is kind of dark, silhouetted against the sky and it reaches up into the heavens. And then at the, at the bottom of the painting, at the base, you can see in, in the landscape this village which he wouldn't have been able to see from the window. That, so that is possibly based on sketches that he'd done of, a ver from a, of um, Saint-Rémy from a different angle. But it, the church itself that you can see with the spire is much more typical of a Dutch church, so but it's the, like a memory. The whole painting, that what comes at you is the swirl yes. of the clouds yes. the, uh, and the disturbance in it. The, it. It's starry night, but it's a different night. It's his own night. Yeah. There's, it's not so much chaos up there. How would you describe it? What do you it is, but it is. It's something else. It's the sky. It's stars. It's night. But there's a there's something else going on entirely. Chris, what do you think? Uh, very much so. And I think this is becoming more and more a part of Vincent's life. He observes the motif, but and he must observe the motif to begin with. But then he's willing to push it further and further uh, on the canvas to turn it into something more dramatic, more physical, more exciting even than the the motif itself. And that brings him in the direction of this abstraction we've talked about. Martin, do you want to come in on that? It's a magnificent painting and um, what's really striking is the stars and for Vincent um, the stars had a real significance. I mean it's difficult for us living in cities to imagine what what one would see on a dark night in the country and there would be virtually no artificial light there so he would have seen the Milky Way and it's astonishing to think of him looking out of his window as he must have done many nights and sort of dreaming of the stars. And at one point, he actually writes in one of his letters that the stars remind him of death. And um, he said one could go quickly to the stars if one had some uh, disease like cancer, or one could take the journey slowly. And the stars had great significance for him. But as you say, it's the movement of the stars, and um, it's almost a horrifying uh, scene because the stars sort of yeah. rush past you, but it gives the painting real life. It's almost like the sea, isn't it? A great storm at sea. Well, yes, and uh, 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 I've made the comparison of the famous great wave by the Japanese yes, artist Hokusai. Hokusai. That's right, yeah. And um, they're both paintings predominantly in sort of dark blues, and the, both of them have got a great sense of movement. One is the sea, and the other is the yeah. stars. And Van Gogh was a great admirer of Japanese art, and he almost certainly knew Hokusai's great wave. It was quite well known in Paris at the time. So, as, as quite often in Van Gogh's art, one can see Japanese influences. Very much, and they, of course they take to him as China does, uh, and on and on he goes. But that's a, I think that's the uh, clearest example that I know, but you know so much more than I do. Chris, the popular idea, and Starry Night contributes to this, and one of the attractions for some people is that he paints out of torment. 
And almost the idea enters, you've got to be tormented to be a real artist. Now I'm, I'm pushing, I know, I'm pushing the envelope. But what do you think of, the, of that idea as an idea, and how did you think it operated if it did in him? I think that it is partially true, because we know that he was tormented a good deal, but great art comes out of lucidity. He is constantly, when he is in his mental capacity, coming back to these things, he is having to make tens of thousands of conscious decisions as he creates great paintings like Starry Night. Torment alone cannot possibly explain the whole thing. His sense of himself as an artist, as a professional, as a vanguard figure also is always figuring in. He's constantly writing back to Teo, plotting an, an artistic career in which these great paintings will play very specific roles. His great art comes out of consciousness. Martin, what do you think of the uh, collision or collusion between torment and great art? Well, I think we tend to see Van Gogh's art as the art of the tormented. I think that may be one of the myths that we have yes. of him. I mean, he, he worked fairly methodically and hard. And when he was actually tormented, he probably painted much less or didn't paint. So exactly. it, it is not the art of a madman. Right. It's an, it's very well thought out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he, he actually wasn't able to paint when he was um, suffering from some of these crises. So it completely exhausted him. And he only really was able to you know he would he always said that he he had to be in a, in a fit state to be able to to work really successfully yes and one of the many um strange amazing things is how much of the time he was ill and mm. couldn't do anything mm. and then in the short time that was available how much he did yes it was incredibly i mean he was extraordinary his output was incredible because he was not just producing paintings he was producing drawings during all this period as well and um, and at one point, actually, he decided to send copies of all, or not copies. They're sort of they're, he calls them repetitions, his repetitions of his paintings, back to Theo and to Gauguin, Bernard, and he just obviously dashes off all these incredible drawings, which are they're individual objects in their own right. That and he no, his output is phenomenal. And one stage, he's doing a painting a day for seventy days, isn't he? Yes, when he goes to Auvers. That's where he's going now, yeah. Francis. Will you take us to Auvers? Um, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, where is it and why did he so, go? So Auvers is northwest of Paris. The reason why he went there, he has several reasons actually, but um, one, he'd be nearer to Theo, or Theo, and the other reason was the presence there of a man called Dr. Paul Gachet, who was a homeopathic doctor. Um, uh, who was also an amateur artist and a, an early collector and supporter of the Impressionists. So he was the ideal person to look out for Van Gogh. And um, he actually done his thesis on melancholia. So he was really interested in mental health. Do we have his conclusions? His conclusions from his thesis. Yeah. <laughs> yes. His conclusion was that, that, that Vincent wouldn't suffer any more crises. This was his diagnosis, and that he would actually be fine once he, once he settled in Auvergne. But I think it would, probably that was um, Wrong. Sli slightly optimistic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, have, we look at the last 10 weeks. Martin, can we concentrate on the last 10 weeks? What happened there at Auvergne? Well, he was astonishingly productive, as yeah. Francis said. Uh, he did 74 paintings in 70 days. What's less well known is that 
60 of them were done in the first six weeks. So it was an incredible rate. He then slowed down a bit, um, partly, I think, because uh, he was doing larger pictures and partly because I think he was getting depressed. But it was a highly productive period. It also must have been exhilarating for him. Remember, he'd come from an asylum where he'd been behind... Uh, high walls for most of a year and he suddenly was a free man and he lodged in an inn uh, just opposite the town hall in Auvergne and it was sort of the centre of the social life in the village so he would be, for the first time after a year, he would go down to the bar and talk to people and have his meals there and it must have been real freedom and the countryside was quite different from Provence uh, less dramatic perhaps but very sort of green and he felt very inspired and optimistic Chris, do you want to say anything about his experience at Auvergne? Uh, it it was uh, new themes came into the art themes of of children family life. There seemed to be at the beginning in, in particular to be a great joy to 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 be there. As Martin says, this then leads into a depression, and the final the final works are grim, st- stunning but grim. <laughs> Not sure if I'd agree with them being grim. <laughs> <laughs> Can we, before, and we haven't talked about the self-portraits, which we should have done mm. a little bit earlier, but we, we'll disorder ourselves for this. <coughs> Martin? Yeah. Well, Van Gogh really is known for the self-portraits. Most of them were done when he was in Paris, the 35 altogether. And the Van Gogh we know, the face that we know, comes from the self-portraits because we have no photographs of Van Gogh as an adult. So um, we know him from the self-portraits. It's quite interesting looking at the self-portraits together. And there was a wonderful opportunity last uh, earlier this year at the Courtauld Gallery when they brought the self-portraits together. And it's interesting the different ways that he looks in the self-portraits, they're not necessarily similar at all, and in some cases they hardly look like the same person. Now, I think Van Gogh was, at that point, experimenting uh, with self-portraits. He was using it as a technique, uh, as a way of trying different techniques, so some of the self-portraits are done in a pointillist or dot style, others are done with long brush strokes. And he was sort of, he used self-portraits as a way of experimenting and he'd always got his own face and a mirror, so you were not reliant on on a model. The self-portraits in Paris, I think, were done primarily um, for experiments, if you like. After he left Paris and went to Provence, in a way the self-portraits become more interesting because I think he reveals more of himself and his character in them. And there are two striking self-portraits where he's got a bandaged ear, and that was a very deliberate decision. Do you want to take up what you were uh, saying? Uh, no, about? Just, yes, I was just what you were saying about um, Paris, um, Martin, because it's interesting that there's a, this whole group of eight um, that we know of anyway, which he did in Paris, which he actually painted on the back of Noonan paintings, so these earlier 1885 pictures. And um, so he had like a still life or a head of a peasant woman and then turned it over, painted it on the back. And some of them were were then covered over, some of the self-portraits were then covered over by someone like Jo van Gogh Bonger and sent off for exhibition. So they they were only discovered when, in like 1926, there were three in the Van Gogh Museum, which were then, they removed the card from the back and discovered the self-portraits on the back. So they'd actually been sort of hidden um, for all that time. 
the one self-portrait I'd like to mention is his self-portrait as Bonds. That is self-portrait as a Japanese priest, a work of, of uh, Provence, uh, in which he says... I, he has a shaven head in it, but he also says in a letter, I have altered my features to look more Asian. And this goes to this issue of observation and the dialectic with invention and the two, the way in which increasingly in the later years, the two of them intersect. Is the more inventions creeping in? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Back to about, we're talking about enormous productivity in these uh, 17. What was the quality of these paintings? So some of the, um, the, I think the most striking series that he produced, if you can call it a series, is the, the double double square format landscapes, which include very famous works like The Wheatfield with Crows. Mm. Um, and they they are absolutely extraordinary, incredibly intense works, which were inspired, one of the people I haven't mentioned in relation to Auvers was um, Charles-François Daubigny, who was an earlier French artist who had lived in the village and had, has a studio there. You can still go and visit it today if you want, a house and a studio. And one of the first things that Van Gogh did when he went to Auvers was to go and visit the house, the second house of Daubigny and Daubigny's widow, because he'd actually died by then, and paint in the garden and paint this house. And he produced these double square formats in almost as a sort of an acknowledgement of this of this format that which was invented by this artist but they really are the the wheat fields um and the and the root paintings the last picture that he's supposed to have ever painted is of tree roots and it's such a kind of extraordinary modern looking painting there's there's no sky anywhere it's just literally these tangled roots and when you look at it closely it almost looks like these kind of skull-like shapes and people always want to read too much into Van Gogh but um it's uh, they are they're incredibly surprising and it's such a it's such a tragedy that he died so young ah, yes. he had so much to offer it's about this time that he uh, takes his own life do you want to s- describe that um yes well um again again there are various theories about how this happened but he he went out into the wheat fields and shot himself with a revolver shot himself in the chest and but didn't die immediately and managed to get back to his, his uh, room in the uh, and he insisted that no one would tell Theo that night because he didn't want to upset him. So he wait, wait, they all waited till the next day. He was still alive the next morning and, then, uh, and Theo came, rushed to his side. And he it took him basically a day and a half to die. And, but he died in Theo's arms, which which is wonderful. And when Theo arrived, he found him smoking a pipe, apparently. which <laughs> <laughs> is kind of incredible, but he was mortally wounded. Is it impossible to imagine why he did this at that time? Well, yes, well, I think one of the reasons was, well, partly his illness, I imagine, and the depression coming on, but it was it was kind of brought on by the fact that he was beginning to feel that he was a burden to Theo. Theo had just had, they just had a, a baby. He and Yo had had a, a baby boy called also called Vincent. And Theo was also having problems at work. And, and he just felt that, gosh, I'm like the last straw for my brother. And, and so that's, a, that's one of the reasons why it's been suggested that he decided to, to end it all. And the works which he'd sent to Theo all his painting lifetime uh, went to Theo's widow. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, yes, to cometh the hour, cometh the woman. This young woman, after the death of her husband, six, six months after Vincent died, uh, suddenly is the custodian of hundreds and hundreds of paintings and works on paper. And it is, we now understand more clearly, she who brilliantly engineered the rise of the fame of this almost unknown artist. How'd she do that? By very, by making good friends with artists who would promote him, by showing them, by allowing the works to uh, travel wisely, and just by protecting the interest of this uh, very complicated brother-in-law she hardly, hardly knew. It was her own work of genius in doing that over the next 30 years. Do you think you would have... Be- made the fame he made without her no i think i think well there were many factors came into play but that there was such a dedicated and intelligent custodian overseeing the process in yo bonger was amazing francis um there were a lot of forgeries early on well yes i mean it was incredible actually how quickly it was thanks to yo really that the market for van gogh developed and um, one of the, the kind of important events that took place was in, in 1905, she organised a, a large exhibition of Van Gogh's work. So that was the first time that people had really had an opportunity to see it. But she also was very careful about how she distributed the work. So she sent quite a number to um, the dealer Paul Cassira in Berlin. And he, he was, I, I think, responsible for the early popularity of Van Gogh among German collectors. Um, Gradually, the market picked up across Europe, I mean, particularly in London, Paris, and um, in the Netherlands, as well as in Germany. But it was in Germany where you see these these fakes emerging. And there's a famous case of um, the Otto Wacker forgeries, which were produced by this this Berlin art dealer called called Wacker, who had previously been a dancer but decided to go into dealing when he was in in 1925. And he must have been an absolutely brilliant individual because he ingratiated himself with all the other Berlin dealers. He uh, established a market for Van Gogh's work very early on. And by this time, the prices for his work were, were rising. And he succeeded in selling 33 works, which turned out in the end to be to be forgeries. Um, which Who had been, did the forgeries? Well, they were they were concocted in 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 a, in a back room by his father and his brother, Leonard. And uh, and it was only when he decided to organise. I mean, he got very above himself. I feel he he um, decided to lend four of these works to an exhibition which he was co-organising with the Casira Gallery. And when these four works were slotted into place among the, the genuine Van Goghs, everyone smelt a rat. And um, it, it dis- and then it dis- all these other Berlin dealers discovered that they'd been conned. <laughs> so there was the Matisse Gallery in Berlin that actually sued him, took him to court. And what was really interesting was that a lot of these works had been authenticated by, for example... Uh, Julius Meyer-Krefer, who was the great art historian of the period, he'd apparently authenticated 24 of these 33 works. Oh, dear. And then also um, the other person who'd just... The catalogue resume had just been published in 1928, which was the year of the exhibition, by Jacob de la Faye, and he had included all these these um, these works in his his catalogue. So he then published a pamphlet called Les, Les Faux Van Gogh, The Fake Van Goghs, and then they appeared and, and gave evidence at the trial. And, of course, Paul Meyer-Greifer couldn't possibly um, admit that he'd been wrong. So he, he stood his ground and he maintained that these were all genuine Van Goghs. But in the end, they used 
pigment analysis. It was the very early days of this of technical analysis, and um, uh, so, so they managed to prove through pigment analysis and through um, various other technical kind of procedures that it that they were genuinely fakes. Or <laughs> yeah. But uh, fakery is a sort of fame, isn't it, in its own way? Yeah, of course, yes. But actually, he he took off. We have to move quickly now. Again, mm. towards the end of the program. But his prices and his value took off. It rocketed off, didn't it? Yes. In America, especially, but in the East, in Japan, yes, uh, in, in, and in Korea, yeah. and so on. Yeah. And we're talking about massive prices, aren't we? Millions and uh, hundreds of millions now, and um, world records being set, um, particularly in that period in the, in the 80s when the Japanese market took off. Yes. So, and still today, it's quite extraordinary actually how the the market for Van Gogh and Gauguin has not collapsed. And I still wonder when it's whether it ever is going to. But you know, there's just quite recently there was a, a painting which sold for well over a hundred thousand, over a hundred million rather. <laughs> the sky's the limit, I think. We're coming to the end now. Can you? Can I ask you all, um, starting with you, Martin? What influence do you think he's had, and what influence do you think, if any, he will continue to have? Well, he's obviously possibly the most popular artist in the world. And what's really striking is the way that it's truly international now. I mean, to begin with, he was recognized in Western Europe, and then it expanded and his painting sold in America, then to Japan, and now to China and the Far East. So he's really international. And he, his work is universally recognized. You know, everyone recognizes the sunflower pictures. And I think people are equally interested in his art and his life because it is an astonishing story yes. that we've touched upon uh, and the two things together make him a megastar. Yes, I think that's true. Do you both agree that it's a combination of those two? Very very mm. much so. The, the, the biography is so compelling. There are so many aspects of it that invite our sympathy and then these images that are so strong... And when the two of them are an uh, extraordinary combination. Mm. I, I think it's right. I think the correspondence has got is a lot to do with it because yes. we've got such you know direct access to his inner thoughts and and the kind of whole creative process. And there's not there's not really any other artist that you can say that about. I mean, Monet to a certain extent, but he was always moaning about his mm. <laughs> about being poor. But, <laughs> um, but uh, no, it really is. I think that's partly to do with it one can feel that you feel that you can really get inside his psyche and the way his way of thinking do you think that he's a phenomenon that's going to come and then peak and then go or do you think he's there you don't know you're shrugging what about you, Chris? No, you I, I think he is one of the ones who will last uh, on the level of uh, michelangelo or Raphael. that big yeah no. I, I agree. I think I think his influence will b b become increasingly strong. And we've there's never been a year when this hasn't happened. As the decades go by, he becomes more and more famous, more and more well known, and the prices of the works rocket. Mm. And any exhibition which has the word Van Gogh in the title <laughs> is is guaranteed to be a success. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much, uh, Christopher Riopel, Francis Fowle and Martin Bailey and our studio engineer, Sue Mayo. Next week, if music be the food of love, play on. It's Shakespeare, Twelfth Night. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What would you like to have said that you didn't have time to say, Francis? Well, I was thinking about um, the way in which Van Gogh's work has has the the color balance has has changed over the years um so that when we look at his work today 
very often we're not seeing it as it was. I mean, that's that's obviously the case with quite a lot of artists, but it's very it's particularly obvious in 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 Van Gogh's work because uh, he used these problematic pigments. For example, it's called lake red, um, which disappears over time. And so um, you look at something like the Church of Dover, and it has a path in the foreground, and it's just lost all the red cut. It's all all red tone, or some pictures. Can you like, get a forger to sort of sort you out? Then? Well, I mean, so so actually, one of the things that has happened, and this is another thing which is interesting, is is people have tried to reconstruct with the olive tree series, for example. Mm. They've tried to reconstruct what it what it would have looked like originally to propel us back into Van Gogh's time. Yes, Chris. I'd like to point out that the rise to fame of Van Gogh after his death in many ways marks the beginning of the end of the hegemony of Paris as the center of the art world. Because the discovery uh, with his death or the death of, of um, Tao, all the pictures leave. Almost all the pictures leave France. He is discovered in Germany, discovered in Holland, discovered in more Eastern uh, Europe and in America. Paris doesn't count all that much in this extraordinary story we've been telling. And that, of course, uh, would, would carry on into our, our own time. Martin, what do you have to add to this as his influence and so on? Well, I think the very fact that he's become so famous, um, there's one of the negative sides of that is that there are lots of myths that have grown up about him that we all assume. And um, it's often assumed that he was uneducated. Well, in fact, he spoke four languages. That's not bad. Mm. Um, that he was an outsider in the art world. Well, he, he, he may have been essentially an outsider, but he knew the avant-garde artists and he knew many of the impressionists. You know, it's said that he was a loner, but he actually, um, he had real friends and many of them were loyal to him. You know, it said he painted in a frenzy. Well, he actually thought his work very carefully. And then, of course, the fact that he went mad. Uh, well, he had some sort of mental affliction. We don't know what it was. But for a good part of the time, he was very, very sane. And most disturbingly of all, the most recent uh, myth which has come about is that he did not uh, he ended his life uh, not with suicide but he was murdered mm. and that was published in a biography in America a decade ago but a, a lot of people still uh, believe that it's true I mean until then the question that I always used to get asked was why did he cut off his ear but the question now is was it murder or suicide mm. and I'm convinced that it was suicide and the main reason for that I won't go into all the uh, the arguments but the main reason that everyone around him thought that he'd shot himself Theo his brother um, Dr Paul Gachet who was looking after him and spoke with him um, the innkeeper where he was staying his artist friends if there'd been any suspicion that someone had murdered him or he'd been shot by accident, they would have raised it. He had decided to end his own life. At 37? Dear me. Anything else, any of you? Uh, I would just point out that uh, in 1924, the National Gallery purchase, purchases the sunflower. That is the year of our centenary. We're founded in 1824. And in honour of that, next year is our bicentenary, and we are mounting a major... Van Gogh exhibition around our sunflowers dealing with this period we've spent so much time talking about in Arles and Saint-Rémy. So there is much to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you all very much indeed. Do you want a cup of tea or coffee? Um, tea, please. Tea, Melvin. Tea. Oh, a cup of tea, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. I found her. Siobhan. Gee, that's a name I certainly hoped never to hear again. English Rose from BBC Radio 4. Where? Nowhere near here, I hope. Guess. Thai prison? Transylvania. What? Where even is that? Is it Europe? I I think it's Europe. This is Rose. Rose is a vampire. Series (laughs) 2. So funny. (laughs) Though, actually, you do totally look like one. A fresh start in the city of angels. Be careful, Rose. So much shifted. And I can see she's changed quite a bit since I last saw her. She's already deeply in love with the night. The past is starting to bite. And I think, oh no, what have I done? Listen on BBC Sounds.